0: Again, I'm Mark Sabota with the National Drought Mitigation Center here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln with the School of Natural Resources, and our panelists today um, are going to give us sort of some drought preparedness case studies. And we have a, an expert group of panelists here uh, to talk to us from a variety of backgrounds with the food and ag... Well, first we have Mohammed uh, Baza with the food on drought and other issues related to uh, water and food security. He'll be our first speaker, followed by Ana Iglesias with the Polytechnic University of Madrid. she uh, has been working on drought um, as well, not just in Spain where she's from, but also in the Mediterranean region for many, many years. And then finally we'll have uh, Gary Eilertz come on um, who works with USAID's FUSENET, the Famine Early Warning System, and, and tell us about some of the, uh, the work they're doing with regards to drought per- preparedness. Um, originally with the focus in Africa, but now FuseNet um, is sensed to be uh, sending tentacles out into other parts of the world too. So with that, they'll each do, the format will be a 15 minute or so presentation by each of our panelists. Then we'll open it up for questions, so save your questions or write them down please. Uh, because we need to go through the three speakers first and then we will take questions. Uh, from you there in the audience. So, with that, I'm going to invite uh, Mohammed Baza up first from FAO to give us his perspective on drought preparedness. Thanks, Mohammed.
1: Thank you, Mark. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Again, my name is Mohammed Baza, and I'm from uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations as a water, senior water resource officer. And just a small uh, word about the food and agriculture organization fao for those of you who don't know it uh, the organization was established uh, was actually the f- first specialized un organization to be established in 1945 by few presidents uh, including president roosevelt at the time and mandated with uh, fighting hunger and poverty uh, as a means to contribute to uh, peace and stability and I say to contribute, because uh, peace and stability uh, are due to other uh, reasons. And uh, the way we do that is really through advocacy, uh, knowledge, availability and information and data, and then uh, partnership and collaboration. And my talk will be essentially about partnership and collaboration, what we do with respect to drought, and also direct policy and technical support to countries so uh, for our concerns with drought of course uh, if we're dealing with hunger and poverty uh, drought hits at that very uh, concern and uh, the way spe- some people around the world perceive the impact of drought uh, is very much different from the way you and I perceive it because it hits their very uh, uh, Basic need to be fed, but it also uh, destroys all the development efforts that have been done by countries by destroying the infrastructure and so on. Uh, it causes the loss of production uh, base, including natural resources, and of course that relationship between food and water become loose uh, again. So, uh, very briefly, uh, FAO actions or the work that the organization has been doing through the promotion of development uh, of agricultural development uh, has contributed to a great extent to building some resilience to drought but uh, really uh, the work of FAO was not targeting drought per se until the mid to late 90s when drought became really very very uh, big concern for worldwide and uh, uh, the major initiatives that was taken uh, by work on drought in the in the nineties, in the the year two thousand, was uh, piloted in the Near East region, uh, because, as the request at that time, the uh, regional conference, which is attended by ministers of agriculture, requested FAO for the provision of some support on drought policy. And uh, in the response to that, the organization made the drought what's called at the time pri- uh, priority area for interdisciplinary action, and established uh, some funding and uh, to to support in that respect. And uh, the reason that region was ch- chosen—the Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia—is because that region was hardly hit by drought in the late '90s and again in the uh, early uh, 2000. Specifically from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and one, uh, there were more drought events. And uh, that action that was taken by FAO where the initiative was taken uh, was really to establish the multidisciplinary team and uh, to allocate some funding. and uh, the mandate at that time was essentially to do some data collection, fact finding about drought in the region but also uh, we uh, the organization uh, FAO and the International Center for Agricultural Research and Development in Dry Areas and the European uh, Institute or the European Center for Agricultural uh, Research uh, CIM we established a regional network on drought because uh, we felt that networking was extremely important as a first step uh, because some awareness is uh, and capacity development was needed and later on, that network grew up to become a network on drought uh, uh, management, a network for the Middle East, uh, the Mediterranean, and Central Asia, and became uh, much enlarged. Uh, we did also some review of drought preparedness uh, uh, jointly with the National Drought Mitigation Center, and uh, uh, we did some uh, uh, training and capacity building in the region. But uh, one of the steps that we took at that time is building partnership from research uh, uh, centers around the world that uh, have capacity on drought preparedness, and uh, uh, the first of them was the National Drought Mitigation Center, uh, from which the colleagues are here, Mark, and also uh, Cody Knutson sitting over here, who came at the time. Uh, to Cairo where I was stationed at the time and uh, spent some time with us and we worked together uh, with the team that I was leading the multidisciplinary team and uh, developed some uh, some guidelines we developed also some projects uh, in Iran Jordan and uh, Syria at the time uh, we also introduced a drought management or drought mitigation component in most of the projects that were ongoing at that time in the, in the regions we developed one of the status report on drought in the region and the guidelines that were developed jointly specifically by uh, Cody sitting here and myself uh, and the team that uh, was from Cairo uh, and then we developed the training mo- module for one week and did some training for the middle east but also for central asia at different times but those are just milestones these are the, docu- the two documents that were pro- produced, a review of drought occurrence and monitoring and planning in the nearest region, and then uh, nearest drought planning guidelines that served uh, as a model or uh, as a training manual. But that process uh, resulted in, in, in very good uh, activities and the, some countries developing strategies with the support of FAO, I will not go into details. But I will go into some of the lessons learned from that work uh, that was piloted. Uh, we found out that in the last 30 years, uh, drought had affected more people in the Near East than any other uh, natural hazard, and in fact, more than 77 million people were affected by drought between 1979 and uh, 2008 in that region. And then the impacts encompassed really all sectors: the economy, uh, the, not only agriculture, but also the environment and, and security uh, in the region, but uh, and, and health uh, equally. But we also found out that uh, droughts' frequency and severity have increased, uh, and, and will likely increase also in the future. And drought uh, will be uh, uh, become a global issue, more or less. Uh, I will come back to that. Uh, we also found out that drought preparedness, or drought risk management, as uh, perceived today, is the solution, but that, uh, that it's still finding its way. The adoption of drought preparedness—again, I will come back to that—but resilience to drought is also a way of building uh, adaptation to climate change. Actually, uh, also the political will is very much the, uh, uh, the foundation for drought preparedness that was uh, necessary. And su- successful drought policy hinges on integration and stakeholders' participation. The, yesterday we talked a lot about integra- the need for integration and stakeholder participation, and th- this came out as really a necessity. In fact, even some of the work we did covered a uh, strategy for agricultural sector, but only with ministries of agriculture, and that turned out to be only partially successful. Uh, integrated drought monitoring is key to drought uh, preparedness and then drought planning must be also integrated uh, across uh, especially and particularly at the local level for community participation and the process of drought planning is quite lengthy specifically for developing countries where basic data even for developing guidelines lacks are still have to be collected and in fact we found that it takes at least 2 years not only because of the lack of data, but also because of the way that countries and the, 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 the habit of working and the, the culture of working in silos, rather than working collaboratively, as we have seen from what has been do, uh, done in, in, in Nebraska. So the new developments since 2008 are, I think, two of them. One of them is that drought has become more intense, and so did so did the impact of climate change. Uh, the, the, the impacts of drought. I put their climate change with a question mark, but I think we have been hearing a lot about that. I will give uh, uh, maybe earlier the session earlier we were talking about whether there is climate change or not. Uh, and one aspect that was not mentioned is really where. What are we talking about? I think most of the talk was about Nebraska and the United States in general, but in other parts of the world, I am giving you this. This is the inflow to what's called the Perth Dam in, in Australia. And it starts from 1950 all the way to 2011, and you can see the trends there for different periods, for the inflow. And if that is not evidence for climate change for over more than half a century, what can, what can there be as, as 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 more evidence? The other lesson that was uh, the new development is that impacts have gone from local to global. It's really as drought becomes very very important and becomes more intense and and more severe. Uh, Wherever it happens, it affects anybody anywhere in the world. And uh, uh, food prices, for instance, uh, resulting in, in part for, from uh, drought that occurred in 2000, 2000, uh, 2008 eight, nine have caused some disruptions. And those disruptions, of course, uh, are felt worldwide. Uh, social disruptions, particularly migration, usually spells beyond the regions that are hit by drought in, in developing countries. Uh, conflict, conflict, particularly for water, uh, not only likely to spell, but uh, they are already spelling in parts of the world. And uh, uh, increased conflict and competition for the natural resources that the whole world depends on, uh, energy and other resources that are needed by the entire world, uh, the, the, the tendency is to, for for conflicts around them to increase. And uh, for instance, uh, there is now clear evidence that drought drought that occurred in east and west and north of Syria for four consecutive years from 2008 to 2011 acted as an oppressor for uh, the revolution. It was not really the cause of the revolution, but it acted as an oppressor. and this is, there is clear evidence for that. Uh, well you might tell me that drought doesn't have only the negative impacts in that case. Uh, <clears throat> But it had very, very, uh, very uh, drastic impacts on livestock and uh, migration from the, that those regions that were hit to, 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 the other, to the cities. So, in response to that new development, uh, what we have done is uh, taken a few measures. Uh, first, I will probably go directly to these measures, four of them. Uh, first, uh, we developed a resilience livelihood framework. Uh, that includes drought, specifically to encourage and promote uh, resilience, community resilience, focusing on disaster risk reduction for food and nutrition security. And uh, then, as a, to promote greater collaboration for drought, we worked with the organisa- FAO and the, U- the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. We worked for, three, for two years to organize a big meeting that was held last March in Geneva and you can see the partners were uh, 14 partners uh, very important organizations from around the world and sponsor 10 sponsors from uh, from that uh, USA the NOAA from the United States uh, and so on were were part of that uh, process and uh, we ended up having uh, this high level meeting in geneva that was uh, with uh, the goal really to raise awareness on the policy at, at the policy level about the importance of drought preparedness uh, we had over 430 participants from 92 countries including one prime minister 24 ministers and uh, at the time the prince of the netherlands who became king last week uh, he was with us uh, uh, as a representative at that time of the, of the uh, UN United Nations uh, secretary general in charge of water uh, issues and uh, we had the scientific segment uh, policy segment and the declaration that really uh, fosters and unanimously ado- uh, adopted that encourages governments to develop and implement national drought uh, uh, policies in the way that will have been discussed uh, in, during this meeting uh it had uh, wide media coverage and uh, uh, created ample awareness at different levels and uh i think we, it has already served as a catalyst for for uh, for uh, promoting drought preparedness around the world and uh, some of the follow up that we are developing jointly uh, the three main organizations the same that organized that high level meeting world meteorological organization the un ccd and uh, uh, fao is a uh, 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 as a follow up uh, this initiative led by UN water aimed at providing capacity development on drought preparedness and it consists essentially of trainings organized in five regions uh, four regions uh, Latin America and Central America uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa Asia and uh, eastern Europe uh, part of eastern uh, of, of Europe there uh, and uh, the uh, other uh, activities or the, the, the initiatives that take, that have t- uh, that FAO have undertaken in response to that is developing partnership with the Robert uh, Davarty and Davarty du- uh, Water for Food Institute in 2012, and actually we had uh, Roberto Lantan, the executive uh, director, who came, the founding executive director, who visited us last December and we uh, develop this partnership um, first on drought but also on water scarcity and research and development this is very much along the lines of uh, partnership uh, with around the world that uh, uh, chancellor harvey uh, talked about this morning that were needed and uh, uh, the, one of the act- one of the activities that we are doing jointly with the national drought mitigation center and the uh, Water for Food Institute is the upscaling of that work that uh, was piloted a few years in the Near East, but also taking into consideration those lessons that I have presented, specifically the integration and also the partnership. And that is being done through regional studies on drought characterization and management, as, as to collect preliminary data, so as to uh, develop a global situation report on drought uh, worldwide. Uh, to upscale those guidelines on drought preparedness with due consideration to uh, the specificities of different regions uh, and to develop technical support tools uh, that as needed and also to conduct to conduct some capacity building uh, on on the implementation of the guidelines in addition to supporting countries for the development and adoption of drought uh, preparedness. Uh these are the uh, regions where the studies are Actually, on on the way, underway. We have already finished. For instance, you see, for there is Eastern Africa, Southern Africa, fifteen countries. Eastern Africa, eight countries. Western Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean, India, China, uh, Central Europe, and uh, the Middle East, and, and uh, uh, North Africa. Last but not least, uh, is uh, F- the FAO is developing an agricultural. Uh, uh, a drought index worldwide based on special uh, special data analysis uh, spatial uh, information satellite information and this is uh, uh, to help to develop this tool also to to have a window on time real time situation of drought in different parts of the world the uh, uh, the scale is really can be worldwide but also uh, at, at the level of countries uh, we can go into details uh, if you have questions on this my colleague oscar who is here oscar rojas uh, who is specialist of these uh, issues uh, can can uh, give you more details and in fact he is here to participate with us in this meeting but also to have discussion with national drought mitigation center so as to uh, to discuss this composite uh, drought index that is being developed for monitoring drought, but also to see how synergies can be created between what FAO is doing and what the the National Drought Mitigation Center is doing. So all in all, it's really about integration and partnership, uh, because there is not one single institute or center or center or organization that can address the issue of drought, and I think collaboration is the basis for that. Otherwise, uh, we are doomed to fail. With that, I would like to thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you for that excellent talk. And um, I think you'll see with all the panelists a common theme that this doesn't just happen. You have to, uh, Muhammad talked about catalysts, and it takes a champion within these groups to kind of take the torch and help and collaborate and be willing to work with others, and I think that's what you'll see with all, all three of our panelists. So thank you for that uh, nice overview of FAO activities around the world. Uh, our next speaker now comes to us from Madrid, Spain, um, Anne Iglesias, has a, a, a good background of working not just with the science side of it, but also with the uh, policy and the planning. And so with that, Anne, I'll have you come up and uh, tell us about what you've been doing.
2: Thank you, Mark, and uh, congratulations on the organization of the conference. I think it's, uh, it's wonderful and I have taken many lessons from my previous speakers and I thank them. It's an honor to be here. Um, it's a complexity we bring to drought, and I'm going to add to the complexity with my accent, please, uh, with my Spanish accent. and. Um, Also, I will add to the complexity talking about a different continent. We have been listening a lot about the U.S. and about Nebraska, and I'm sure in the audience many people are more familiar with issues from this part of the world. I'm going to start with, oh, okay, sorry. I'm going to start with the conclusions. The conclusions in a region that, as you saw in the title of my previous presentation, I'm going to be focusing on the Mediterranean, both European and North African side, and on Africa. And the complexity here is that these are my conclusions. We have eternal drought in the region because we have overlapping water scarcity, aridity, desertification, and so many issues that we think we are always in permanent drought. That's the first conclusion and that adds complexity to the management. Then in the region there is really a very long love affair between drought and policy and development. In Spain, for example, we have water laws that go back 800 years and they have been dealing with the issue of drought in different levels of legislation. And we have this love affair, not only with policy development, but with aid, with food aid development. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. In Mediterranean countries, especially in Europe, there are too many laws and there is too much confusion. Um, this is not an issue only relevant to drought. Usually we have legislation, the legislation that is based on the Roman code, very thick books. Nobody understands what's going on. and. You know, very confusing, so everybody can do whatever they want at the end of the day. Then, in terms of, can that legislation bring practical drought preparedness? I have my doubts on it. I think not much, and especially not for the worst impacted. And as you will see, I'm going to bring up some maps here on the screen. Drought increases inequality in this part of the world, and so it's not really addressed, and that legislation is not cater to, to decrease that inequality. Uh, one of the questions that Mohammed asked me in Geneva when he organized the United Nations conference was, how about the dollar's value? Policymakers make decisions based on the dollar value or the dollar impact. We still don't understand very well how to relate um, the dollar value to the drought signal in the physical uh, uh, world. So those are my conclusions and I'm going to start with the first one aridity you know eternal drought that's a normal picture of a river that's a picture that I took a few years back in Tunisia and that's a normal river in many areas of the regions that I will be talking about rains only between 5 and 10 inches of rain per year So most of the rivers don't have water. That doesn't mean we have drought every year, we live in an arid climate. And management water imbalances between supply and demand is not the same as managing climatic variability. So with this in mind, uh, in in 2004, I started, I coordinated a project with uh, 11 institutions from seven different countries and we developed some practical ideas on how to cope with drought and water scarcity in agriculture and water supply systems. I wrote that book um, with Donald Wilhite, was one of my co-authors, and it was quite successful. We translated it into Arabic, Greek, Italian, Spanish and French, and very recently also into Farsi. We were called to talk with the, with the government of Iran in a UNDP project, and we work in the Urmia Lake. That's the Urmian Lake. And that's, the white is not snow, it's salinity. It's the second largest saltwater lake in the world after the Aral Sea. So we work with them to develop drought management plans. And from that, we wanted to evolve, not at the institutional level, but descending to the users of the water. To, with more practical examples of, of, of drought management. So for that we wrote a proposal to the European Commission and we won it. The name of the project is Euphora. you can explore that website. And what we are trying to do there is to develop a protocol that links the what do we know in the science and in the social science to how do we do it and how do we implement drought management actions. And we have been very extensively working in many parts in, in, in Africa. Especially I have worked a lot in, in South Africa and I will continue to work during this year in South Africa. And we want to incorporate into the management of drought not only the social the the physical aspect but the social components. Because as I say before, uh, the same that in the same way that we have an arid c- climate that has very little levels of water to work with and to manage. We also have a poverty line and we have very little levels of income to work with and to react to drought. So in our concept, we have two components. One is the hazard in the horizontal line and another is the social vulnerability component to drought. And trying to understand those two aspects and how to develop actions to deal with each of those two aspects is one of our major goals in um, in the protocols that we have to develop. So, uh, when we have been working with the stakeholders in the region, we consult a lot and we tell them what happens if you have a, uh, a forecast, if you have the right forecast. And f- to issue the forecast, we work with the European Centre of Medium-Range Weather Forecast in the UK. And they issue the forecast for us in Africa. So we ask the, the, the users and the stakeholders, what can you do? But more important, what will you do and how will you do it? It's not the what, it's the how to implement the actions. We have been working with water management on the protocol, water managers, that's a picture in South Africa with uh, um, the water managers in that particular reservoirs and also with uh, farmers so our concept and what we try to communicate to them is that that red dot there is we want to act and to declare drought before we have the drought coming so that is during the normal condition that's really to establish um, an alert system b- before we have the drought um, um, signal so, with that concept in mind, that's the Dufora concept, we have developed some very practical tools for the stakeholders to develop the actions. And we have basically this is a simple four uh, boxes toolbox. And in the top line are the what, what is the science available, what are the societal capacities, and then in the bottom two squares are the how, how to translate the science into policy and how can the society benefit from the forecast so now we are in the middle of writing a document and this is the structure of the document and I'm the responsible person to write I mean my team is the responsible to write that document together with the 18 teams that work in the DuFora project 18 international teams we have very good um uh, information about the science as I told you the the European center of medium range forecast is providing us the science we are working with a joint research center of the European Commission on characterizing vulnerability that that was that picture not only the hazard but also the social response and we have developed a a uh, drought vulnerability index that gives us an idea of the priorities for intervention in a particular year. Uh, um, as ingredients of that drought vulnerability index, we have many things from uh, the land agricultural area to the GDP per capita, to the trade parameters of, uh, of the agricultural products, uh, to the groundwater characteristics of every country, to the amount of the salinated water that we use, And it's very interesting to know that in the countries that we have the most water scarcity in the Mediterranean, that we have less than 2% of the renewable water resources in the world, we use almost 30% of the desalinated water. So, in many variables, we are already at the limits of resiliency. Okay, so that's the science. We we know a lot, including the social sciences. Um, what are the societal capacities? For that, we have worked very much on the evaluation of the institutional performance. And every single country that participates in, in our project in, in Africa has mapped the institutions and the response. Um, so the countries have provided us information with the institutional relations, public participation, based in management, monitoring drought in the water law contingency planning groundwater ownership etc that help us to have an evaluation on the institutional performance and that's essential to understand what type of actions we can implement because the baseline is not uniform in all the countries so on the how issue we want to go from science to policy and we want to understand what type of proactive capacity or reactive capacity the different countries have, what are the differences between the different social groups, and especially what is the social learning. And this morning I was really moved by um Charles? What was the 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 the, the name of the last speaker before coffee? No. What? Okay. Okay, on the wonderful uh, social learning process that you have in Nebraska and that's something that we are very, very, very far from in, 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 in Africa and in the Mediterranean because that social learning is what really brings the solutions. And the solutions here we have in this part on the how, we are now in that uh, bottom box. We have uh, focus on permanent measures to help uh, societies understand what kind of tools can address this water scarcity problem, not just the drought issue. And um, uh, of course, among the many solutions, technology, management of aquifers, etc, we have uh, a particular social sciences solutions that they are very difficult to implement in the Mediterranean and in African countries. One relates to the price of water. And another relates to water markets. The price of water is very difficult to discuss, even in my country, which we uh, think we are entitled to have water uh, for free for the users. Um, we have this is a picture in Spain. Those are real water markets uh, in some parts of Spain. People own groundwater and they can sell it. And people go to the market in the, ba- in the banana uh, irrigators and go to the market to buy water every morning to irrigate but that's a measure that's very difficult to implement in other places. So with, uh, with these types of uh, solutions, moving forward to proactive planning, we uh, work in the development of drought management plan. That's a drought management plan. It's a document in Spain. This is a drought management plan. There are sets of rules that help different groups to prepare and anticipate and mitigate the effects of, of drought. And the way we structure the drought management plans are on three levels. We have, um, we focus on pre-alert actions before we have the drought. The drought declaration, remember, is before we enter into drought with the forecast. And those are measures that are low cost and indirect, non-structural, and they're aimed to avoid worse situations. For example, I have worked very much in in Italy in uh, in the pre-alert measures. This is a communication campaign from uh, one of the worst in my project in Sicily. Then we developed alert actions that are aiming to overcome worst situation and uh, try to avoid the emergency stage. And one, for example, that we have worked a lot is with the rights uh, exchange center Exchanging water from irrigators to urban uses to ensure that the population is not at the shortage of having drinking water, and establishing those protocols before we get into the drought. And finally, sometimes it's unavoidable to work on emergency actions. This is a picture of an emergency action is a water transfer from one place to another. Those measures are often very costly because they're done in a hurry and they're not planned properly. So, how can we decide who is affected and we, how can we benefit from all these types of protocol? This is my very last slide. We, we recognize uh, that there are very large disparities between water users and um, I was really moved to, to see how all Nebraska comes together because the, the goal is the same on saving water and on having a drought forecast. In, in our region that's a picture of Syria before, I mean, when we could go to Syria and work there, now we cannot longer go. And uh, all the users, and we want to reach all the communities and especially understand how drought brings disparities and we can uh, outreach the, the most vulnerable populations. Um, so that's my last, so that's, a, that's an open question and, and I'm here to discuss with the institutions, FAO and USAID, how do we proceed and, and have something that is useful at the end with all our effort. So I want to thank especially the people in my teams in Metroplan and Euphora project and especially Luis Garrote, which he has written with me a lot of the protocols, and from the Joint Research Center of the European Commission, Paulo Barbosa and Gustavo Newman. Thank you very much.
0: Our last panelist before we open up for questions will be from USAID's FuseNet, uh, Gary Eilerts.
3: Good afternoon, everybody the last 15 minutes of a long day. So I'll try to move quickly and hopefully be interesting. Um, I stand in awe, though, of one of the presentations yesterday about epigenetics. Uh, I'm just amazed that I could feel emotional at the end of a subject which I knew nothing about. It was a new standard uh, of performance for me. So I'm I'm afraid I'll fall short. But what I'd like to do is take a little bit different direction uh, on the issues that we're talking about. I am going to talk about water and food, but from the perspective of a food security organization. What FuseNet does is we cover food insecurity in about 35 of the most insecure uh, places in the world. And we've done that for 30 years, and, and we do it fairly well, we think. We've had a lot of time to practice at it. If we, if we haven't gotten any good, then we're really in trouble. But uh, I'd like to deal with a few of the issues that I think are maybe uh, common to a lot of the discussions we've had over the last couple of days and uh, that hopefully you'll find some interest in. And I'd like to just remind us all again about what's at stake. It is lives and livelihoods in in these questions. And food security has recently become very uh, much more, uh, has much more of a profile publicly than it ever had. And I think I'm anticipating the moment when water security becomes equally important. It's, It's a part of food security that we've neglected too long It is becoming a very major part of the issue that we call food security. So we are actively looking for ways to measure food water security in the same way that we measure food insecurity. Uh, Global and local realities, I think this is a continuing issue in a lot of the information that we're using and we're trying to to project into decision-making environments. There are global realities and there are local realities and both of them have a place and not always do they coincide. Um, And then I pose a question, if you can't measure it, can you manage it? And I'll come to that point. And then I think there's a moment where I I perceive in our situation that sometimes good questions are better than good solutions. And I'll try to explain that as we go. Uh, As I said, FuseNet is actually sitting outside of the boundaries of, of the walls of USAID. It was set up about 30 years ago to be an impartial, objective source of information about food security. Uh, The reason they did that is because uh, the U.S. government through USAID provides about one to two billion dollars worth of food assistance every year. Now that's a huge resource and it's really incumbent upon uh, the custodians of that resource to provide it where it has the highest value use, where it accomplishes the most uh, important things. And so, uh, in their wisdom, they have allowed us, FUSNET, to be uh, objective. We operate outside of their walls. We are not uh, subject to their publication strictures. We, we report things as we see it, and I think that actually works to their advantage as well as uh, we hope everybody else's. We work very closely with our colleagues at FAO, with World Food Program, with the, the research and, and practical uh, community that's trying to institute policy, policies on drought and food insecurity and uh, particularly with the nations, the nations that are affected the most by these issues and which eventually have to pick up and carry the heaviest burden on food insecurity, food issues and water issues. Um, One of the big issues that we've recently gone through and some of you, hopefully a lot of you know, know about the famine in Somalia in 2011, Uh, For the food security community, it, it was the culmination of a process that has grown over 30 years. Being able to look at indicators and being able to perceive the chance that there's going to be a famine has always been our objective. And as I say to most of my friends, for about 27 of our 30 years, we kept trying to achieve the moment where we could adequately describe what happened yesterday was our standard. And it was only about three years ago that we, an early warning organization, decided that we would try to achieve a six-month window ahead of time, that we would try to project and be able to say what we thought the outcomes would be six months down the road. And in the Somalia situation, um, I think that started to occur. And we, we actually started putting more and more strident uh, alerts out into the, into the decision-making environment back in August of 2010 about the increasing likelihood of a famine in Somalia. And we did this in conjunction with a number of partners in the region, and as far as we can tell, that was the first ever formal declaration of famine that occurred on the basis of a prior agreement about the standards that we would use for that proclamation. And it did bring together a lot of national, regional, international parties in a common agreement about what constitutes the stages and the nature and the characteristics of a famine. So it remains behind as a, as a precedent that I hope will be useful in the future in these types of situations. And it was based on a base of information, of evidence, so that we could all see it was a transparent basis. And we are collecting that data as a community in all of these countries that we're working in. So we'll be watching that. Now, unfortunately, as big a success as that might have been technically, you can see here the, the results of a report that we just published with our colleagues at FAO just last Thursday. And basically it is a, you know, we look backwards, which we are not able to do very often, but we felt that this situation merited it. And so based on a lot of information about mortality that had been collected in 53 different sites over months and years in Somalia, we felt we had an adequate basis to go back and see what the excess mortality is. thats is, above the normal rate of mortality. And we had some very eminent researchers that from the London School of Economics and Johns Hopkins who did the study for us. And you can see that right there, the, the curve of excess mortality, about 260,000 people, about 133,000 children died in that period of, of concern. And I want to point to you right there, that's the moment that we felt brave enough to declare a famine, which, uh, you know, in terms of the standard of success, that's probably not a very good one. So it just simply indicates several things. There is a complexity there that is extremely difficult to measure. There's always a perfect storm in these types of situations. So we had Ash-Shabaab, a terrorist group that was cutting off the ability of WFP and others to uh, serve food into those very vulnerable areas. There was a whole range of other things going on. We have a drought that has been uh, uh, present in that area for quite a while. Uh, but ultimately, it's a, it's a reminder of the amount of rest that rest that remains to do in terms of this work. Now, droughts in Somalia. You know, there were, at the moment when we were about to raise the alarm and say there is a famine in Somalia, we still had some colleagues in the community who said, well, this is just another drought in a drought ridden place. This is just another drought. And indeed, you know, there, Somalia is a very dry place. But as we looked at the, the numbers, and as we looked at the evidence, we did feel that there was something more going on. Unfortunately, we were dealing with a global perspective that also worked against our evaluation of what the situation was. And this was the IPCC report, the fourth one which was published back in 2007. And basically, if you read between the lines and some of the the analyses that came out of it, the report concluded that there were, or the the, uh, conclusions were that the Horn of Africa would actually become wetter over time. Now, this still persists in an agency like USAID. People look at this map in particular and they say, well, you know, when we're planning forward for drought mitigation, should we plan for more water or less water? And the answer is, is that sometimes global realities, global modeling, does not capture what's happening locally. And so I'm not here to impeach the validity of the IPCC process. It's a wonderful process. It's, a, it's an extremely interesting one. It's like the internet. How did they ever get this going? And and with the reach and the number of participants in it, it's just a wonderful process. But every once in a while, global models don't reflect local realities. And the information, the database that exists to look at what's actually happening on the ground and to suggest that that isn't happening, that it's not becoming wetter, is extensive. And there's a number of you in the room here, I'm sure, who who have the ability to look at what happened in the rainy seasons in the Horn, and you can see that there's no trace. There's no reason to believe that there's more rainfall coming. And the famine occurred at the uh, culmination of a uh, record dryness over the last four years preceding it. So it was, uh, it was maybe an extreme event, but it's certainly not an unusual event. And it's probably an event that is becoming much more frequent. And for us, the bottom line here was that if you're going to treat this issue, you shouldn't treat it as an isolated event. This isn't just a famine that comes today and isn't going to come tomorrow because the large features of dryness and drought are going to be here with us for a long time. So we have to start thinking about building more resilience. And I can tell you within the USAID, USAID uh, and within the US government, when we started talking about resilience was not right after this but it was this followed by the Sahel, all of a sudden we saw two issues in which the droughts and the food insecurity that were present suggested that we hadn't been really doing much with our emergency assistance and we needed a longer term perspective. And that in the United States was, was the moment when resilience was built, was, was created. Now, like I say, the global realities are not always the local realities. And if you intend to do something about an issue like climate change, you really need to know locally where you're going to invest. In those areas where you intend to change something, you need to know exactly what's happening. And so one of the ways that we've tried to do that, we're we're trying to advise on the allocation of a lot of funding that's going into um, climate change adaptation. And the issue there is that you're not going to go in and just put in some activities all across the surface of Ethiopia or Kenya or any other, name it, country you're going to do it someplace. And so you want to do it where it has the most impact. You want to do it where there is a hot spot. You want to do it where there's a need for it. And by looking at uh, the data sets that we have, you know, and we've blended all of station databases with satellite databases, and we have what we think is a very good 30-year picture of what's happening. And as we look at it, we see that there are some trends that look like they're fairly consistent. And for the next 10 years, we think these trends are unlikely to be changed, so they are the reality that USAID is going to be investing into. And as you look at the patterns there, you'll see that the dryness, that the 400 or the, uh, the 250 millimeter isohyet, which was at a certain point in 1960 to 1989, it has moved westward as of 1990 to 2009. The average in that period. And then at that same rate of of movement, it will move further westward. Now that gives you a place to think about and and a plausible issue of climate uh, change and a place for prioritization of adaptation. The other thing that is true about that area, and I don't see Dr. Tedessa here, but it's, it's uncovering an area which is probably the most densely populated of Ethiopia. There are literally millions of people in the Rift Valley where that is approaching and, and uncovering them with uh, the rainfall, the water that is available there. So that's a problem just waiting to explode. Just for an example, the global reality issue isn't just limited to drought and such. Uh, our colleagues at FAO have long published a global food price index, and it's been a wonderful tool because it tells us on an average what the commodity prices are for the major grains and major commodities in the world. And it's really important. But in order to try to understand what, what degree of knowledge that was providing us in the countries that we're dealing with, we decided to try to put together regional indices. Because we did see riots in Tunisia and, and other unhappiness expressed in a number of places. And the concern was, Well, if that's the trend, you know, that's what we have to work with. But what we found when we provided, uh, when we put together regional indices is that there's a great amount of variation in the way prices react over the same time period in different areas. And as you'll see down there in West Africa, that has no signature that is very similar to the global index. And so it begins to tell us again that The local reality maybe does not really reflect the global reality. And it does, on the other hand, point us in the direction of looking at, and you can see it there, the East Africa, where the the name is. That's the signature of the famine that was occurring in East Africa at that point. And you'll see it's far above the global index. And right now, if you can see the Southern Africa one, I think that there's a market crisis that has just come upon us and is acting on that population in Southern Africa just at the end of a rainy season in which there was quite a lot of dryness and drought. So we're watching that very closely because we think that that's a very stressful food insecure situation. One of the things that we build on in this community of food security assessment is how blessed we were early when we all came to the concept that there was a thinker that provided us with a concept that helped organize our thoughts And Amartya Sen came out in the 80s with the concept of food security. And he said, there's three major axes, availability, access, utilization. Well, okay, good. What that did though, is it allowed us to not concentrate so much on trying to organize our our activities. And there's a whole group of us that have to do that. But it instead allowed us to start thinking about how we would operationalize those indicators, those axes. And we spent a lot of time going out and looking at rainfall and prices and nutritional information. And the community as a whole became very digital in nature. Food security is, is exquisitely poised on a base of evidence and data, like no other sectors, I think. And uh, as we look at a lot of the other concerns that are now coming up, and, and I'm asked to go and speak with often at conflict events because people uh, perceive that conflict is related to food insecurity. And I say, well, you know, that is a testable question. Why can't we test it? We have digital information about whatever area you want. What does the food insecurity in this situation look like? How did it persist? How severe was it? How did it change over time? Tell me what your concept is for conflict. And you'll find that it's very artistic. Well. People were unhappy and they rioted. Well, is that the nature of conflict? No, Uh, but the problem with that that, uh, concept right now of conflict and its link with food insecurity is that we're really still dealing with apples and oranges here. We're dealing with a digital kind of a, a concept and conflict is still trying to find a, uh, a measurable understanding of the progression, the causality, the drivers, the impacts, the different types of conflict that exist. And so we're, we're really at an impasse right there. We really can't say yet too, too well whether food insecurity causes conflict. And I think similarly, you know, and despite the fact that all of you have probably been involved in water for a long time, when we look at the world, at the global food insecure world, We also don't see the tools and the concept that guides a measurement of water security. And by that, I mean, we want on a monthly basis to understand what the change was over a recent period. And we also want to know if that's approaching or departing from a threshold of significance. Is somebody going to suffer because of this? Is it a change? Is it a good change? Is there an opportunity for growth here? And until we find that concept, water security in the same sense of food security is going to be very difficult to implement. One of the things that we've done is to just jump in the water is we're actually going to take a concept that had already been funded and, and done by FAO and Texas a and and had a little bit of participation by USGS in Northern Kenya and Southern Ethiopia. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to monitor surface bodies of water from the satellites we can get real good resolution with that. And then we're going to model how they go up and down by modeling the rainfall inputs into it, the evapotranspiration, all of the other features, the water cycle that we have. And then periodically we'll get people to go out and help us cal- calibrate our understanding. And what we're hoping is to get a little bit better feel for what the variation is on a weekly or monthly basis. And we don't think that this is the final solution to water security, but it's the way that we get into it and start testing How difficult that concept is. And here's where I say if you can't measure it, how can you manage it? And I'm talking about drought. And I've seen over the last two days, including just a minute ago, I've seen and and yesterday as well when uh, one of the gentlemen, uh, Dr. Hibbard, maybe that was today, he was showing the Missouri Basin and he was saying here's where drought was and he had bar graphs and all that. And the problem with these droughts that we're dealing with in Africa and other places is people will say, well, this is, this is just like the 2005 Niger drought. Oh really, how? How does it approach that? What's your basis for saying that? What's the evidence that you have? Because a lot of the times food security is such a complex phenomenon that we use an analog year as a reference for how urgently we should be concerned about responding to this issue. And with drought, the major feature of food insecurity in the world that we all deal with, there is no community accepted standard for the prevalence and the depth. So we've taken uh, inspiration from the US Drought Monitor and we're looking for, in the same way that Oscar and FAO are looking for, a measure of drought that allows us to say what is the prevalence and the depth of drought over the last 10, 20, 30 years in any place of concern. And right now, all we deal with is, uh, they say, in 2005, 6 million people were food insecure. And again, you kind of go, what does food insecure mean exactly? And it is a term of art. It doesn't mean anything. So we're looking for a hard and fast edge to a drought description that we can use uh, in order to decide whether we think it's a big issue or a small issue. Some of the things that we're looking at is, you know, NDVI is one of the products that we've really begun with back in the 80s. It's been one of our workhorses and it's getting better resolution. We're getting a little bit more comfortable with it. Uh, So it's a a good candidate for using for this and we'll talk some more with our FAO colleagues and others. But we also have a new uh, evapotranspiration actual. We're actually measuring evapotranspiration on a daily basis and it gives us a slightly different different signal. What we're looking for right now is the, we're trying to figure out which products are the best ones to use for a specific use. Are we looking at agricultural drought, hydrological drought, meteorological drought? What are the uh, the products that are available? What's the time frame that they provide us in terms of a baseline? What are the meaningful thresholds in there that indicate a difference in impact, in severity of that drought that we can use? to categorize droughts in different uh, in the same area over time or in different areas. And this is just this is one that's looking at the southern africa season that's just now finishing in fact it's having some rainfall late so we're fearing that some of the grain that has is still standing out there is getting wet when it shouldn't be it should be drying down. But if you look at those columns those are actually looking at two different thresholds of drought of drought severity. And then we're counting the, the hectareage that was involved at each of those. And we'll be able to say that, well, in terms of droughts in Southern Africa, the big one you see there is 2002. How does this approach 2002? Well, it's not, it doesn't. But you also see that you know, the last three years here all look like they're fairly important in terms of uh, persistent events. And so we'll have to look at that persistence of the, of the drought event as an issue that uh, we should uh, understand better. So, there are just, uh, you know, as we rank those, just the problem of, of what indicator to use. We've ranked them. Uh, there's a general similarity in the way that all of those things rank with those different products. We know that 2013, this one, ranks up in those top three or top four uh, events over the last 10 years. So, that says it, it's probably an important event. Good questions are good solutions. This is my last slide, I think, or last uh, two. Uh, our climate colleagues, we've got to give them the props, as our kids say. We've got to really say that they did, they did good with the idea of climate services. And the, what climate services says, it's not just about climate products. It's about driving decisions. It's about giving decision makers something that they can use to make a difference and that's a climate service. And so the climate community is grappling with how far, how, how, how to achieve a climate service orientation. We in food security have the same issues. The information that we gave for the Somalia famine didn't really cut off the famine very early. Uh, the perfect storm, is it the chicken or the egg? This is just simply to say, when you're trying to figure out what to give a decision maker, you can't just ask the decision maker what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. We don't know what they need. So there is a difficult dialogue that begins there uh, trying to figure out what a food security or a climate service or any of the other services is. You can start with the decision makers and you tr- try to extract out what they need. They're not really good to, uh, at telling you what they actually need. And we have trouble understanding what they need. We generally take our meteorological products and we put it on the porch, as somebody says, and then we ring a bell and say, it's there. And then we close the door and they come and get it and we conceive that they make good use of it. But it's a difficult process. A good solution, on the other hand, is, is a good thing, but solutions are very time and space specific too. So a good solution is good, but a process that keeps regenerating and reanalyzing and coming back to your basic questions is better because that's going to deal with the problems next time. And that's the end. Um, all of our information is at fuse.net. And we're ha- very happy to be here today. And maybe we'll have some questions. Thank you.
0: All right. I'd like to thank all of our panelists again. And uh, at this point, we have some time, obviously, for some questions. If you could just come up to the mic and identify yourself and uh, pose your question either to a particular panelist or all of them, that would be. Acceptable. Well, it's been a long day, but certainly something jogged you from our presenters from FAO and Spain and FuseNet. Yes?
2: My, my question is uh, regarding the experiences you have had in uh, different international contexts.
1: And uh, so far, we have been able to. Uh, get the information global at very high resolution
2: scales in different variables that are used to track or measure or monitor drought. And they, but certainly it's not enough in terms of the time from these are covered. So how you deal or how you cope with this heterogeneous information in the different settings you, are, you have worked
0: Sounds like that's for each of you, if you want to come uh, up to the microphone and provide a response. Who wants to go first? All right, Gary?
3: Uh, it's a very important issue. We, we do have different data sets that are present in some places, different understandings that are available in others, and rarely do they, they overlap in a way. What we've tried to do is we have one source of resources that we're trying to allocate to the highest use. So we make sure that each of our analysts, who are people from that region, from that uh, area, we have each one of them going through a decision tree process. And they're using a standard that we call the Integrated Phase Classification. It's an internationally accepted uh, protocol for identifying food security issues. We've developed it and managed it with FAO and WFP and a whole range of other groups. And we try to make sure that the process moves the same way in each country. And we also do recognize that we're dealing with poor data. So we don't have a mechanical way. We don't have an index at the end of this. We have a human discussion around the table. We go district by district. And we say, who has information about Gaia in in Niger? What do you think? Is this a phase three? Is this a phase four? And then we go to another district. And we have everybody contribute. And it's through that kind of mix of human intelligence and the evidence on the table that we eventually come to agreement about each of those places. And then we hope that also, country by country, we can compare what's happening there.
1: Yeah, uh, I would like to add just, when it comes to monitoring, first, it depends what are we monitoring. Uh, Monitoring and early warning is supposed to be part of the process of drought planning and management, or proactive drought risk management. And it's part of the, it's actually the first or the foundation of drought risk management. Uh, Unless you have a very good monitoring system. But the monitoring, first, there has to be rules on what we are monitoring, as just indicated, so as to be able to reproduce the same monitoring and also to do comparisons space wise and between countries and so on. And the monitoring, unless it serves users and decision makers it is useless. The monitoring has to be linked to actions such as decision making and what needs to be done and at what time. And this also is part of this of the, of the process. This is what we uh, incapacitate people and countries to do so as to be able to apply that process. So it's not just Anybody measuring anything can then deciding what it is. There are scientific, and I think there has been ample advances in science and technology over the past years in the uh, design, in the, 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 the monitoring and early warning aspects of drought. Uh, but again, beyond the monitoring, there has to be a link with actions, what actions to be taken, and who are the stakeholders, what are the concerned institutions, and when, when they should take action. So the whole process is framed in what we call these drought management guidelines, or the, 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 that that is uh, I have been talking about. Uh, of course, the, again, uh, one way to the monitoring that has became that has become easier recently is through satellite measurement. Uh, advances in information and uh, in transmitting information has, has 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 been very very important today uh, it is possible to to send information to farmers uh, using using just their telephones, uh, in addition to in, in email and so on so uh, unless those who need to take action are informed on time and they should know ahead of time what actions should be taken at different stages of a drought uh, then the system is not functioning very well uh, and monitoring—I mean, uh, monitoring using satellite and uh, such as the uh, images that we have seen, uh, using NDVI or using composite uh, information that is based on satellite measurements uh, has also made uh, monitoring uh, much easier than the way it is done conventionally by measurement on site. I don't know if I have been uh, clear, but. Uh,
2: slightly different uh, answer um, gary leads a global program and he has to have intervention operational he has one billion dollar per year he has to prioritize based on a common measure And fao also has this global mandate for understanding when we work on developing solutions at communities. It doesn't matter if we have a common measure because it depends on the community. Drought management in Nebraska will be totally different if you wouldn't be sitting in top of the aquifer. So sometimes the vulnerability, the social and the contextual vulnerability issues dominate the solutions rather than a common methodology. So what we try to do is help local solutions to be built with the as you mentioned Gary the entitlements of a mantra and whatever the societies have to be able to react to that you can be there um, my question is to Anna, miss Anna um, if I understand correctly you and your team developed a vernal- drought vulnerability vulnerability index
3: is that correct um, you mentioned very quickly could you, as a He's the student i would love to know the modeling and would that be possible to use uh, for any other countries um, thank
2: you we we wanted to develop an index that is concept concept driven not data driven there's so many sets of data there that is very confusing so building upon the components of the human development index developed by Amantra sen the the access to resources uh, by um, education and health and poverty we can have different dimensions of the potential response to drought and that potential response to drought is one of the dimensions that we have to understand to be able to bring solutions so just another example if a town has a well and another one doesn't have a well when it does, they don't have water from the river one can come to the well. So we have to capture that, and it's difficult. But I, I think definitely infrastructure is one of the dimensions that has to be incorporated into a vulnerability index.
0: Any more questions? We're about at the time where they'll start, I believe, the, the poster reception outside here in the lobby. Um, I guess we'll wrap it up with that and I'd again like to thank all of our panelists today for their uh, insightful talks. Thank you.